Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. As usual, I want to remind you of our volunteer, Charlie Fabian, who is available if you have suggestions or materials you'd like to bring to our attention. You can reach him at charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about Philadelphia, a city of poverty and wealth extremes that deserves some attention. We're going to be talking about unionization drives that are really remarkable across the United States, with special emphasis on the effort to organize United Auto Workers at the UAW uh, campaign, Chattanooga, Tennessee, at the VW plant. And we're going to talk about the emerging general strike situation in Quebec, Canada, our neighbor to the north, which is experiencing similar surge of labor activism. So let's get right to it. Oh, and I should remind you, after the break, we will have an interview with a perennial guest on this program, Rob Robinson, about the whole human rights movement around the world, of which he is an active leader and member. Okay, let's begin. Philadelphia has the distinction, if that's the word, of being the U.S.'s poorest large city. And by poorest large city is meant that the gap between the poorest and the richest is downright stunning. So stunning that I want to read these numbers to you just so you get it. Back in 2008 and 12, so roughly 10 years ago, the gap was already grim between the Fair Hill neighborhood, the poorest, and the Chestnut Hill neighborhood, the then richest. The median income, and remember, median income means half the people make more than that, half the people make less. The median income in the poor neighborhood of Philadelphia, Fair Hill, was $18,900 per year. Okay. In the richest, Chestnut Hill, the median income was $106,200. $18,000 versus $106,000. Ten years later, the most latest numbers, the gap, the poorest had $26,500, and the richest, North Liberties and Fishtown, $133,000. 300. In other words, over the last 10 years, the rich grew richer and the rest of us didn't. Now, this is really important. It goes to helping understand a growing bitterness in the United States as more and more people force themselves to admit which of these groups they're in. The one getting richer. Now, the rest of us not getting so, and seeing no prospects for their children to face much of any different situation. Inequality, in short, is getting worse 
in the United States, and it was bad 10 years ago already. And you know, when you get inequality like this, the inequality seeps into everything else. The rich neighborhoods have the time, the money, the connections to get the better street cleaning and the better schools and the better social services and the better police protection. You get the picture? You make the whole society unequal. All the way back to the ancient Greeks, Aristotle and Plato worried about market systems with their tendency to make inequality worse as destroying community, breaking apart with jealousy and envy and bitterness and resentment going with the inequality. Philadelphia, called the city of brotherly love, is undermining any chance for brotherly love by fomenting this kind of inequality. There needs to be real public outcry and action against it. And you know, there is something in Philadelphia's history that might give us a clue. Back in 1910, it's a little over 100 years ago, Philadelphia became famous in a different way. It was the site of the 1910 general strike. The workers of Philadelphia went out in solidarity with the transport workers union then, which was complaining about bitterly bad conditions and treatment, making them, yep, poor. The whole city rose up in a general strike against the corruption they saw at the root of the inequality. Well, Philadelphia has always maintained its share of corruption. But the deeper problem isn't the corruption, but the inequality that feeds and lives off that kind of corruption. Well, from a general strike that might happen in Philadelphia to getting a little closer to it, there are strike movements across the United States. There are unionization movements across the United States. I thought you might be interested in this little statistic. From 2018 through this year, through the first half of this year, from 2018 through the first half of this year, strikes averaged about somewhere between no strikes and 30,000 people on strike per year. In the second half of this year, it's been 61,000 strikers per year, double what it's been. So if you're sensing a strike wave, you're right, there is one. And now let's look at two of them in particular. The United Auto Workers is fresh off a very successful strike against the three major automobile companies in the United States, Ford General Motors and the successor to Chrysler known as Stellantis. They got record gains of all kinds and really came away with a sense that when workers get together and fight, they can really improve their situation dramatically where they work. In other words, 
company officials telling them that no such improvements were possible, couldn't be afforded, there wasn't the money. It all turns out to have been fake. They could because they had to, so they did. Well, the UAW is not stopping. They have announced most recently that a thousand workers have now signed the little legal cards that lead to a union election because the thousand are more than 30% of the labor force at a Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They've signed those union authorization cards. But this is only the first in a whole series of efforts by the United Auto Workers to organize those factories that are still unorganized here in the United States. And those are foreign companies that came here to get into the U.S. market. And here are the ones the United Auto Workers has targeted. Tesla, Toyota, Hyundai, Rivian, Nissan, BMW, and Mercedes-Benz. What a collection of companies that have been roaring along with profits while screwing their working classes. This is now going to stop. In the words of Steve Cochran, a skilled trades worker and leader at the VW plant in Chattanooga, here's what he had to say, and I think you'll see why I chose to read it. People are standing up like never before. There are a lot of young workers in the plant now, and this generation wants respect. They're not okay with mistreatment by management. They see what's happening at Starbucks and Amazon. They know that standing up to join the union is how you win fair treatment, fair pay, and a better life. The other remarkable union drive is going on in Quebec, Canada, to our north. There, it's the public employees, and there's so much information here that I want to pick it carefully to get you the importance of it. And I want to thank our listener up there, Michael Fortin, who provided this information. Over 400,000 public employees began a week-long strike on Friday, December 8th. It was their third work stoppage. They had a one-day strike on November 6th and a three-day strike on November 23. This is the third one, and it is showing they're not accepting the contract offers earlier on. They are rejecting a 12.7% wage increase over five years. I'll come back to that. The organization is many unions getting together to produce a common front, or because it's Quebec, a front commun, as the French call it. What an amazing achievement these workers show. They're able to organize, while on the job, a 400,000 worker strike across many locations in one of the world's largest countries, Canada. Talk about workers managing complicated industries. Hmm. Their strike management is exemplar of what they can do. Now, Canada's inflation rate over the last five years has averaged 3.3%. What the company 
excuse me, the government is offering the workers, 12.7 over five years, would be lower than the average rate of inflation. In other words, it's a contract that means if you get it, you will be worse off in terms of what you can afford at the end of the contract in five years than you are now. That's what they're offering, is a decline in the standard of living. Are you surprised that the union says no? Wow. The Canadian Labor Congress, that's the equivalent of the AFL-CIO here, issued the following statement, quote, Members of the education, health, and social services personnel, 78% of whom are women, are sending a clear warning to the government. It better put real offers on the table. This is the last of three strikes. The union president said in a joint press release. And now hear what that joint press release concluded with. This is a final strike sequence before calling an unlimited general strike. Aha! Quebec is finding its way to a general strike to solve a social problem the way Philadelphia and its workers found their way to a general strike in 1910 to solve their problem. General strikes are when all working people say, we're not working anymore until these issues get addressed. Usually they do. It is something to think about as the country keeps moving more and more in the direction of needing it and seeing no other way to get the mounting problems solved. We've come to the end of the first half of today's show. Please stay with us. Rob Robinson is a remarkable guest and will be a fascinating source of insights when we return in a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very happy, proud, and honored to bring back to our microphones and our cameras Rob Robinson. He's become a real regular here, a friend of mine, and someone who has a lot to offer us, as your emails in response to his earlier appearances attest. So first of all, Rob, before I introduce you, let me thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. It's always a pleasure to join the show and be able to talk openly about issues of social injustice, things I feel strongly about. Okay, let me introduce you now, just to remind those who may not have seen you before. Rob Robinson is a human rights enforcer and practitioner, his words. He organizes communities and consults with land and housing movements around the world. Formerly a homeless community organizer and activist based in New York City, his work focuses on changing people's fundamental relationship to land and housing. He works with social movements around the world, including Brazil, South Africa, Spain, and beyond. He's the USA and Canada coordinator of the International Alliance of Inhabitants, an alliance of 12,000 members worldwide, which supports a zero evictions 
platform. He has lectured at many American universities and abroad as well. He's currently teaching in the design and urban ecology program at Parsons New School University. So let me begin, Rob, with this. December 10th was Human Rights Day. Tell me what that means. Why do we have that holiday? Is it really celebrated? Do Americans participate? Give us a sense as a way to get into this topic. So I think, Rick, thank you once again. I think it's a holiday that's or, or a day that's celebrated around the world, but not so much in the U.S. It is shifting. It's changing because I believe when folks talked in the past about human rights, especially housing as a human right, it was thought of more as a slogan or it was used as a slogan. But I think now people are trying to understand what it really means. And to me personally, it's meant a lot. Being formerly homeless, trying to understand why people don't have access to housing, why people can't access land in this country, and the fact that they're commodities, I think, is at the root cause of that problem, right? So how do we change that? How do we change the mentality, especially a mentality that filters down from our government and elected officials down into the community? So when you talk about human rights, it seems that people who are activists, who are community organizers, members of community-based organizations will point their fingers outside of the U.S. That's something that's international. That's not here. We're this great democracy. And I challenge that idea of this great democracy uh, that is framed in a, in a constitution that was written over 200 years ago and using some outdated language. You know, I've always thought of human rights as those basic things, you know, enough food to be healthy and strong, enough shelter to get your rest and to recuperate at the end of each day, the clothing, you know, to keep you warm and to keep you healthy, and, and you know, the basic education and the basic health care, all of that. And it's clear that millions of Americans don't have that. They, they have none of it, or they have some of it, but not others of it, that are making do. I, I was reading this morning about the number of people showing up in emergency rooms whose basic problem is they scrimped on their medications. They didn't have enough money to keep up. So they, you know, where they supposed to take a whole pill, they took half of one. Where they were supposed to take it every other day, they did it every week. And they ended up getting sick because it's not the way the medication works. I mean, it's always seemed to me that I live in a country that doesn't respect that, that doesn't really believe that every citizen has that right. Because if you did, you wouldn't have that situation that we have in so many areas, you know. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's tragic when you think about it. In the wealthiest country of the world, we can't meet people's basic needs. That's problematic. But this government is proud of thumping its chest and, and pumping up its chest and saying, look what we did for Israel. Look what we did for for Ukrainian people, you know, and yeah, I was involved in the water crisis in Detroit and, and Flint back in 2014. And as we were able to organize and push for rallies and, and protests, we finally got meetings with government officials. And the first thing they would tell us is how much potable water they sent around the world, right? But what about here? 
What about the U.S.? What about your own people? Where is the humanity afforded to people living in this country? How are you meeting people's basic needs? And I think we come up short every time we ask the question, we can't get a straight answer. Well, maybe there's a clue. We don't celebrate it here. We don't make a big deal uh, as we didn't on December 10th about Human Rights Day because we don't want people to be thinking about human rights because then they're going to figure out what you just said, which is we're not observing them in this country. We're falling short. We're failing. And what what's the reason for that and who to blame? I, I've heard my students ask me in class, what's the difference between quote-unquote civil rights and quote-unquote human rights? How do, you, how do you respond to that? So for me, uh, human rights meets my basic needs, the fundamental needs, as you mentioned earlier, food, clothing, shelter. I always quote the Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as the standard, which mentions all those things. It says government has an obligation to, to meet the needs of people. Civil rights, as I mentioned earlier, especially in the U.S., is framed in, a constitu in constitutional law. And our constitution values property rights over human beings, right? It, it values commodities over people. And I think it was problematic from the time it was created. I also think there's language that is very troubling, if you ask me, right? It starts with the line of, we the people. And I come back with the questions, who were those people? Because at the time, people that looked like me were considered three-fifths of a man. So we weren't included. So who are we the people? Yeah, clarify that. And I think there's been such resistance to go back and amend our constitution, but I think that's what has to happen, right? We can we could do it at local levels and state levels, but how do we do it at the federal level? How do yeah, and I want to be clear here, you know, especially for students, because I often lecture at law schools. I don't want to undermine the work that was done in the 50s by the civil rights folks who, you know, really got engaged. They were trying to change the lives of people. But, I, you know, Peter Marcuse, a longtime friend, I think of both of us that we know well, always told me you don't want to reform, you want to transform. And I think when you talk about human rights, you're transforming a constitution. I don't want to go in there and just edit it. And I always look at, at, at constitutions around the world that were written in modern times as a guide, right? South Africa, as much trouble as they had with apartheid, the human right to housing is in their constitution because it was written in modern times. You know, in Brazil, that was once a dictatorship in 1985 when the new constitution came around. Land has to serve a social purpose. The landless workers movement has been able to reappropriate 600,000 families using that language from the constitution. But we can't change much in this country until we change that constitution, right? The, the right to bear arms is perfect proof that we need to change the constitution because everybody's answer is give me a gun, I'll fix this stuff. You know, it's it's I think it's the outdated constitution that leads. And then we have to find litigators. And I'm very strong on this when I go to law schools, Rick, is we have to find litigators with the courage to educate their clients to come into a courtroom and say, I have the human right to a home, and you have to say it as a litigator and challenge what I like to call the black robes, the judges who are sworn by this constitution to, to, to say you don't have it. 
And I doubt you're going to get a judge to go on record and say you don't have the human right to, to a home. Go in the back and negotiate this thing. They don't want it in front of them. Not with the stenographer taking a record of, of everything they say. I don't think that's going to happen. Although you do know, because it struck me, that during the debates over health care, Obamacare, and all of that, there were health corporation executives who had to, they got backed into a corner, and they said, health care is not a human right. They want to be able to say, I can charge you whatever I want for it. You don't have a right to it, but I have a right to charge more than you can afford, in which case I am in practice making you sick or taking your life because I'm not observing the human right to adequate health care, even though we know how to care for your illness, we know how to cure you, we know what medication works. It's extraordinary not to have a, a national health care system in this country that enacts the right. Most other developed countries at least go to that extent of recognizing the human right to health care by giving everybody from birth to death a basic health care access that they have, regardless of their money. I, I think you bring up an interesting point here, right? I've spent a lot of time in Brazil over the last 10, 12 years. And in 2015, I was there for six weeks. And we were up in the Amazon. I was with a group called the Movement of People Affected by Dams in Brazil. And we were on a boat on the Xinhu River. And I fell out of the boat and scraped up my hand on some rocks in the river. The guy driving the boat knew there were rocks. So he was cutting the engine. And I moved abruptly and I fell out of the boat and I cut up my hand. I didn't realize uh, how bad it was until one of the women on the boat started screaming and look at your hand, look at your hand. Then they wanted to take me to the doctor and I jerked my hand back and said, no, they're going to make us pay. I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. And they laughed at me and says, everybody gets health care, Rob. We're going to take you to the doctor. Sure enough, you know, I went to the doctor and they took care of me and all that. So my name and date of birth and, you know, lived happily ever after, never saw a bill. So, you know, I think we're coming up short in this country. We have to rethink healthcare is a commodity, right? If we want to continue, quote unquote, this great democracy, well, if people start to get sick and start dying off, you know, how are we going to keep up this great democracy? It's going to fall apart. I think it's something we really need to focus in on. And I do think there are efforts in social justice organizations to push healthcare as a human right. And it's becoming, you know, something serious. It's becoming a serious movement here in the U.S. Given the world today, I have to ask you this question. What's the relationship between human rights on the one hand and war, uh, like war that we see in Ukraine or war that we see in Gaza and so on? So for me, I think we. We aren't humanitarians unless we speak out against what's going on, right? I think you have to actively speak out against it. I was supposed to join a meeting today of the advisory committee of a group called The Ship, which was formed by former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, Leilani Farha, whose roots are in Egypt. So she's very much plugged into the Middle East. She canceled that meeting today because she's participating in the global strike. And I do think there's an awareness around the world now that we've had it up to here as communities, not only around the world, but in the U.S. You know, you've seen on college campuses protests in favor of supporting the Palestinian people. Nobody is saying 
I understand why Hamas did what they did. Nobody's speaking out. Nobody is in, in favor of what they did. But they're not in favor of Israel just going in Palestine and just bulldozing all of Palestine. And I think folks are speaking out. And at some point, there's going to have to be another ceasefire and a serious ceasefire because these rallies are going to just keep going and going. So I, I think the relationship is real. You've lost humanitarianism if you participate in this. And I think we're seeing that in Ukraine and we're seeing that in Palestine and the Middle East. Rob, you are a warrior. That's why you're here. That's why people recognize what you have to say. Thank you, Professor Wolf. I, I always enjoy having these conversations. You know, it's not many spaces where you get to talk freely, and this is one of them. I appreciate that, Rob. And to all of you, I hope you found this as interesting as I did, and I will speak with you again next week.